we are in the book of Micah, if you would begin turning there. It is good uh, to gather ag together again. Our, our goal will be to study this uh, minor prophet book of Micah. This is the sixth of the minor prophets that are listed there for us. They, they essentially are organized according to kind of the timing of them. Not exactly, but um, so we'll continue to make our way through. We just finished up the book of Jonah together, and so now... I, my plan is probably in about four weeks, three today plus three additional weeks, is to study the book of Micah together to understand what God would have for us. Here we are 2,800 years later, and we're looking at a book that I think is very timely um, for the world in which we live, and, and I imagine every generation could say that because God's word is living and active. Would you agree? Yes. Certainly so, and he speaks uh, into our circumstances. So let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would come and you would minister your truth to the deep places of our hearts. Father, we pray that we would uh, dig into this book of Micah and see it not as a message for some people or solely as a message for some people that lived so many years ago, but Lord, that you would give us a spiritual insight into our own hearts and minds and how these things that are be address being addressed to a people, Lord, you want to search out our hearts in regard to these things. Lord, you want to search out our community and our nation in regard to these things. And so we ask for you to bless uh, your word, that you would use it to teach us, to equip us, to train us, to rebuke us where it need be in all righteousness. And so bless our study of the book of Micah, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Micah, uh, if you don't know where it is, uh, just go to your table of contents. You can find it there, but it is immediately following Jonah, as we said. And the book of Micah is maybe uh, one of the better known or at least familiar books uh, of the minor prophets for folks. Uh, it is quoted five times uh, in the New Testament. That's, that's more than most of the other books, if not all of the other books. It's quoted five different times in the New Testament. There's two famous verses from it that most of us know, maybe even if we're not... Uh, digging into the Bible too much. Uh, people in our culture might be familiar with and aware of these particular verses. And so this is the Christmas season. We're heading up, up on it. I've already turned on my Christmas music in the car, so it's official. It's the Christmas season. Um, but even at the end of this week, it will be, I guess you might say. Micah 5.2, you know the verse. It says, You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And of course, that's referring to the birth location of God's Messiah, where Jesus was born, the city of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, you know this verse perhaps. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. A familiar verse comes from the book of Micah chapter 6, Verse 8. And so, as many of the books of the minor prophets have done, what Micah does is he begins, verse 1, it, it's sort of this primer, it's a primer um, to kind of give you an idea of where we're going, what this book is going to be about, who was the prophet that it was revealed to, who were they to go and talk to about these particular things. And we see all of that in this book. So, look at chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw 
that is Micah saw, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now the book of Micah, it was written, as we see, by this particular fellow, his name is Micah. He comes from Moresheth. Moresheth, it was a small village, uh, much like some of the other prophets. We saw Amos came from this tiny little village. It's this small little village. It was located about 25 miles south and west of Jerusalem. That was the big city. These were just, this was just some, some small little village that was somewhat in proximity to it. That's where he comes from. And so as we begin, once more what we see is God is raising up sort of this insignificant individual to accomplish his purposes. And we've seen that a number of times. Can God use the, the grand, the, the highly distinguished individual? Absolutely. But typically, God raises up the nobody in our society. That should be an encouragement to you and I. Because for the, most of us, most of us here, we're nobodies. We're just average people going about our day. We're going to live our lives. We're going to come to the end of our days. And 50, 100 people are going to mourn our loss. And in five years, they won't think of us. All right, I hate to say it, <laughs> but that's the reality. Um, for the most of us, we're just average people living our lives, and God can raise us up and use us during the days of our lives. And that's what he's going to do with this particular fella, Micah. Micah wasn't a distinguished man from a distinguished family living in a distinguished city. He was a nondescript individual, and God used him. And that should be an encouragement that God can use you as you make yourself available, as he is directing, as he is leading, verse 1, 2, or whatever, it'll say the word of the Lord came to Micah. As the Lord lays his word upon your heart and you step out in obedience and in faith, God can use you. And he used our friend Micah here, he used Amos, he used so many of these prophets that we've been considering. Now we also learn in verse 1 the time period that Micah ministered. And so you see there, it says that he ministered in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And it goes on to tell us who they are. They were kings of Judah, Judah being the southern kingdom of Israel. So that gives us a time frame. Now I understand most of us, when we hear things about time frames and timelines and things like that, we're thinking, oh dear, let me, think, let me start making my list of other fun things to think about while he's talking about that. And when he's done, I'll come back because those types of things don't interest us. Timelines, time frames, but they're very important. They're particularly important for us to understand. They give us clues. If you want to think of it that way, let's make it fun. They give us these clues to begin. Okay. What kind of time period was it? What, what was it like during the time period of Ahaz and Jotham and Hezekiah? Are there other places in the Bible that talk about those particular individuals? Does it tell us what Israel was like? Because if Israel was like that for those kings, and Micah lived and ministered during the time of those kings, then Israel was like that for Micah. Does that make sense? And so that will, it's not just a verse you quickly read through and you're like, that's cool. You know, It's a verse you stop, you consider, you think about, so you get a sense of who it was that Micah was ministering to and what life was like when Micah was ministering to them. It paints for us a fuller, a more full and complete picture. And so it says that he ministered during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That, we can do a little research, that puts us in the time period of about 740 to 685 B.C., we know some other things from Scripture. We know then that that makes Micah a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. 
It makes him a contemporary of the prophet Amos. We just finished studying that particular book a little while ago. And so if you wanted an even more full picture of what is going on during the time period that Micah is, uh, is ministering, then you would go back and you would look at Amos and see the types of things that God compelled Amos to tell people. What were the types of things that God told Isaiah to tell people? And so all of this gives us this greater picture, okay, what was life like when Micah was ministering? And I'd encourage you to read those books. Obviously, the book of Isaiah, uh, you could read. The book of Amos, you could read. Regarding those kings, we read their stories of their lives and what was going on in the books of 2 Chronicles, chapter 27, through about chapter 32, all right? And three or four of those chapters in particular look at the, the king Hezekiah. So you can go back and you can dig into them. I'll give you a little bit of a sense here. Let me trace some of the history. Israel, you remember, it came into the land of promise under the leadership of Joshua. That was around the year 1350 B.C. During Joshua's life, the nation walked with the Lord. They, they had a few incidents here and there, but for the most part, they walked with the Lord. During the time period of those that... Uh, that, my, that Joshua led, then Joshua died, and now these people are the leader, that next generation, the people walked with the Lord. But by the time you get into the book of Judges, sadly, Judges covers about 1300 till about 1050 B.C., 300, 250 years or so of time. Unfortunately, what you begin to see in the nation of Israel is sort of this up and down. They're doing all right with the Lord. Usually it was dependent upon a good, strong, solid leader. The nation was doing what it was supposed to be doing, but that leader passes off the scene, and it, they just sort of descend into sin. They, in particular, they descend into idolatry, and that's sort of the history of the book of Judges, up and down, up and down, up and down. Right around the year 1000 B.C. or so, 1050 B.C., the people demand a king, and God gives them King Saul. Not a real good time in the history of the nation. After King Saul is King David and King Solomon. A pretty good time, in the, particularly during the days of David, where the people are walking with the Lord. The nation is expanding. God is blessing their obedience. He's doing the things that he said he would do if the people walked with him in obedience. We see that during the days of David and King Solomon. Then, upon the death of King Solomon, I'm just trying to recount some history for you to give you this picture. Upon the death of King Solomon, there's a civil war the nation divides into half geographically. Ten tribes go with the north. Uh, two tribes go with the south. Those ten tribes never walk with the Lord again. There may have been one individual here and one there, but as a people, they never walked with the Lord again. They embraced idolatry. They went full bore after idolatry, and they will experience the consequences of that not too long um, down the road. The nation of Judah was much like that time of the, the book of Judges, up and down, up and down. Some good kings that led the people in a good way and some bad kings that led the people in bad ways. And what does God do through all of this? God continually and graciously sends his prophets. And so during the days of Saul and David, he sends the prophet Samuel. During the days of David and Solomon, he sends the prophet Nathan. He'll send to the northern tribes, after the, the nation splits, some lesser-known prophets like Shemaiah and Ahijah and Hanani and Obadiah, that book that we finished studying recently. And he also sends them well-known prophets to the northern kingdom, Joel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. At the same time, he's sending prophets to the southern kingdom, names you know, like Elijah and Elisha and Hosea and Amos. 
And for hundreds of years, what the Lord is doing is sending his prophets to his people to call them back to himself. Sadly, they will a little bit and then they'll fade back. And they will a little bit and they'll fade back. And it seems they keep falling further and further and further back. And God, faithful to his word, would bring judgment to the people, on the people. And initially, it was sort of a slap on the hand. Oh, gosh. Wake them up a bit and call them back. But as they descended further and further and further, and the slap on the hand really didn't do anything to them anymore, it didn't bother them anymore, he would bring them something stronger and something stronger and something stronger. And the word of God said he would do these things. So this just wasn't some random thing that God on, on the, what should I do now, what should I do now? He knew what he was going to do. He said what he was going to do. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read this, Deuteronomy chapter 28, 15, God speaking through Moses, he said, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you will not be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command to you today, then all these curses will come upon you and they will overtake you. Now remember, the Old Testament was built upon that Old Testament covenant, that Mosaic covenant, the one revealed to Moses. And you could summarize the Old Testament covenant this way. If you do these things, I will bless you. But if you do these things and you persist in doing these things and you insist on doing these things, then I will bring a curse against you. And as you read Deuteronomy 26 and 7 where the blessings are, and as you read chapter 28 where the curses are listed, each one of those statements about if you do this, I'll bless you, and if you do this, I'll curse you, are, there's a long list of ways that God would bring blessing. Their fields would be fruitful. Their, their wives would be fruitful. You know, these kinds of things. There's ways that they would be blessed. And if you continue to do these things, there's a long list of the ways that God would curse. And it's sort of this growing uh, form of a curse. It gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger until the final culmination of God's discipline upon the people. This is right at the end of Deuteronomy 28. It says this in verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you will serve other gods made of wood and stone. The Lord will bring you and your king to another nation. That speaks of exile. That speaks of captivities. That's what would come upon the people if they continued to persist in their sin, if they refused to hear the prophets and what the prophets were saying to them. The book of Micah, we are at that point. God had been sending these prophets and sending these prophets and sending these prophets. Micah, again, he ministered from about 740 to about 685. In 722, the northern kingdom is taken off into captivity. In about 606, so that's about 80 years after Micah uh, ministered, but around the year 606, the Babylonians began to come in and take away the southern kingdom. And so during the days of Micah, the northern kingdom, who he prophesied to, were actually taken into captivity, as Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36 says. The nation of Judah, or the southern kingdom, they would be shortly thereafter, after he had ministered. God's judgment upon Israel's perpetual sin, I hate to say it, is the central theme of the book of Micah. So this will be a fun book for us to dig into. 
But once again, God's judgment upon his people is the central theme of one of these books of the minor prophets. But the book's not entirely about judgment. Because if you look at the conclusion of each one of Micah's messages, there's going to be three sermons that Micah delivers in the book of Micah. It's going to be chapter 1, starts in verse 2. Chapter 3, it starts in verse 1. And chapter 6, it starts in verse 1. And if you look at the conclusion of each one of those little sermons that he gives, after having spoken all about God's coming judgment, he speaks about a hope of a future restoration of his people. It always comes back to that. And again, we remind ourselves, why does God discipline his children? Why does he discipline his people? To get even with them? Is that why he does it? No, he does it to bring them back to himself. And so every one of those sermons, if it's going to be the complete word of God, it has to end with that message of restoration. Because that's the whole purpose of the discipline. Our friend uh, Micah is going to speak of these things. The people will be judged, but they will not be judged forever. Again, we can think of it from the perspective of that uh, parable of the prodigal son. He sends them into captivity, the most extreme form of his discipline, so that they'll come to their senses and that they'll return to the Lord. And we'll be looking at that. Now, there's one other point I want to make before we really get into the book itself. And that is, so the, the root of their sin was their rebellion and their idolatry. That's where it all stemmed from. What it looked like, the fruit of their sin, what it looked like was in the form of oppression and corruption by those that had power, those that were the leaders of society, whether in Israel they were the political leaders or the religious leaders. Micah is really drawn to point out the corruption and oppression of those particular leaders. That was the fruit of their particular sin. And so when the nation of Israel, when it was established, it was essentially established to be a rel relatively flat and stable society, pretty much equal for all. Every seven years, there was sort of a minor reset button. Every 50 years, there was a major reset button, and it kind of put everything back. We're going to start over life again, the, the game again of life. We're going to start it over again. It was meant to be a relatively flat, flat and stable society for the people. But by the 800s and the 700s, sort of that old agricultural system that had been in Israel and Judah, which had a fairly even distribution of wealth, it was gradually replaced. And it became a greedy, materialistic, and harsh society that divided the society into the haves and the have-nots. And sadly, because sin was reigning in their hearts, the haves quickly began to take advantage of the have-nots in society. And again, kind of think of it from the perspective of, is this the type of society that God created for the nation of Israel? Is this the city on a hill that God wanted for the nation of Israel? If you think of these as like family members, is this what parents would want for their children, that one child would abuse and take advantage of another child? None, none of those things. And Micah stirred by it, probably because Micah was in the oppressed class. And he was bothered by it, and he calls it out, and God's going to deal with this. And he goes and he tells the people all about these particular things. We'll look at that as it makes its way through his sermons as well. But to wrap up our introduction, our study through the book of Micah, we're going to see an alternating between prophecies of judgment and destruction and prophecies of restoration and forgiveness 
And we're going to see this recurring sort of attacks by Micah upon the social and moral ills of his particular day. Sound good? All right, let's do it together. Now, that, that's the intro, so that doesn't count as part of my sermon time. All right, now we're going to jump into the sermon. I didn't get an amen. Really? All right, verse 1 again. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Judah. All right, so we now see at the end of verse 1 who he's delivering these messages to. It says Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. These were probably, I I can't say for certain because I don't know, the largest cities in Jerusalem, population-wise, or in Israel, population-wise, they were definitely the centers of national thought and the centers uh, of action, so to speak. Action dictated. This is what we're doing in our particular country here. And Micah, now he was primarily a prophet to the people of Judah, which was the southern kingdom, but he, in the very beginning of the book, he has a message for the people of the northern kingdom. He tells them that their captivity is coming, and it does, 10 years later, 15 years later. Micah begins, look at verse 2, first couple of words, he says, hear you peoples, and that's how he begins each one of his sermons. Again, chapter 3, verse 1 is the second, chapter 6, verse 1 is the third. He says, hear you peoples. That's like saying, everybody listen up, because I have something to say. Do I have everybody's attention? He says, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down upon a steep place. He begins, everybody, listen up. Like a judge that calls for the attention, or typically in a courtroom, the bailiff would say, you know, hear ye, hear ye, the honorable judge enters in. Everybody call to attention, quiet down, because here comes the judge. And in this particular instance, the judge is the Lord. And he's leaving his throne room. Mike is painting this picture. He's leaving his throne room in heaven, and he's coming to to have court, to hold court. In figurative language, he depicts it in this particular way. He says, behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He's going to come. He's going to tread the high places. That was where worship their gods, feeling that they, the closer they get to the heavens, the closer they get to their particular gods, and they would worship and serve their gods in these places. The Lord is so stirred by the wickedness of his people that he had been warning for 500 years, he's so stirred by the wickedness of his people that he leaves his holy temple, so to speak, to do battle with those people. It won't be much of a battle. Look at verse 4. And the mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fires like water poured down to a steep place. Not much of a battle at all. I'm reminded of the words in the New Testament book of Hebrews that says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing. Now Micah hasn't officially told us who he's talking to. He will in verse 5. He says, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What's the transgression of, of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what's the high place of Judah, 
Is it not Jerusalem? Now, Jacob, you recall, was the patriarch of the Jewish people. His son is Judah, which is where you get the name Jews from. Uh, Jacob was the patriarch of the Jewish people. He would have his name changed from Jacob to Israel. And so here, the, when it talks about the transgression of Jacob, it's speaking about that northern kingdom, that kingdom that was known as Israel and their capital city of Samaria, the place of their high places. Chapter 2, he's going to speak of the judgment that's going to come upon those descendants that made up the southern kingdom that were under the capital of Jerusalem. And again, sadly, both Samaria and Jerusalem, they became the centers at times for idolatry. What's even more sad is that Jerusalem still had the temple where they were worshiping and serving God as he had asked to be worshiped and served. But across the valley, you can see it, they would have all these high places set up to all the other deities that they were worshiping and serving as well. And uh, Mike is going to address them in the second chapter. But in chapter one, he's primarily dealing with uh, the nation, the northern kingdom. He says in verse six, he says, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her curved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute she shall return. Remember, uh, the worship and serving of these false gods was almost always connected with the temple prostitutes, the false temple prostitutes, not God's true temple. He says in verse 6, Samaria will become a heap in the open country. If you've been over to Israel, you know that you'll be out and about and you're looking at this flat field and then all of a sudden this really cool sled hill is there and you're like, that's odd. Why would that be there? That's not a, a geographic thing or geological thing it's a man-made thing that used to be a city that had been destroyed and the dust blew in upon this destroyed city where there's nobody sweeping it away from their front door and next thing you know it becomes a tell in the city uh, this little heap that is there Samaria will become a heap in the in the open country verse 6 he says that the stones of her home will be thrown down the houses will be dismantled broken down and thrown into the valley the idea it's speaking of this idea of total destruction of Samaria which is what happened when the Assyrians came in he goes on in verse 7 and speaks about her carved images they're man-made idols that's what that's speaking of and how they're going to be smashed and how they're going to be beaten into pieces he talks also in verse 7 of the wages of the nation's idolatry. Again, that's the temple prostitution and how all of that will be destroyed. Again, a complete and total destruction of the northern kingdom, which came about in Micah's day in 722 B.C. Now, I'll remind you that Micah was from the southern kingdom. So if you heard, you know, that Canada got destroyed, would it, would it bother you? I'd be like, oh, that's too bad. You know, I know some guys that live up in Canada. It, it wouldn't impact me that much. So Mike is from the southern kingdom. The above judgment is referring to the northern kingdom. But notice how Micah responds to this. We see it in verse 8, that the revelation of a coming judgment upon the northern kingdom. What does that do to Micah? Well, it tells us it moves Micah to tears. And not just tears, but weeping, wailing lamentation it moves him to verse 8 says for this i will lament 
and I will wail. I will go stripped and naked, you know, tear your clothes sort of thing. I'll make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah, it has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. So catch this about Micah here. Despite the fact that Micah is not from the northern kingdom, and despite the fact that that kingdom was responsible for leading the southern kingdom into sin as well. That's what that last point there in verse 9 means, where it says it has reached to the gate of my people as well. So he's not from the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom caused the southern kingdom to sin, despite the fact that the northern kingdom was getting exactly what God said they would get if they refused to listen to them. Despite all of, all of those things, how does Micah respond to the revelation of God's coming judgment upon them? The text says it moves him to weep and to wail and to lament and to mourn that judgment. And so the prophetic word that God laid on the heart of Jonah moved, excuse me, Micah, moved Micah greatly. And it did because Micah was a godly man. And when Micah heard about judgment on others, Micah was broken in his own spirit for others. And I would suggest to you, this is the reason, or at least it's one of the reasons why Micah is so successful as a prophet of the Lord. Because Micah genuinely cared for the people to whom he ministered. And he was genuinely grieved for what was coming upon those people. I said Micah was successful. The southern kingdom, again, if you, you go look at those kings that Micah ministered to, the, the last of the kings that Micah ministered to was Hezekiah. And repentance came in the days of Hezekiah. It delayed judgment for another uh, 100 years almost here. Micah was successful in his ministry. Isaiah, they were successful in their particular ministry. And our friend here, Micah, I would suggest to you one of the reasons why he is so successful is because he ministered from the place of a broken heart. He actually cared what would happen to these people if they ignored him, if they didn't respond to the plea. So do you want to be successful in your witness? Then here's what I would suggest you do. Ask God to break your heart for those that you're ministering to. And whether that be, you know, you're involved with formal ministry, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're the youth group leader, you're involved with RHM, whatever it may be, whether that's a formal ministry you're a part of, or it's just you're at work and you're desperately trying to win the lady or the guy that is next to you. Ask God to break your heart for those individuals. Because having a broken heart, broken heart for those that you're ministering to, whereas it doesn't guarantee that that person's going to respond per, uh, positively, it sure goes a long way. I, I, I usually hate little cliches or whatever, um, but you know, there's that little cliche about nobody really cares, nobody cares what you know until they know that you care, that kind of thing. That opens up a person to receive from you when they truly know that you care about them. They see that your heart is moved for them and concerned for them. They're open to hearing. And sadly, I think Christians... I think many times preachers, we can give the impression that our sole duty is to announce the disaster and that we couldn't care less whether the person responds positively or negatively to that message. If your heart is not broken, if your heart broke in, excuse me, if your heart is not breaking for those you minister to, ask the Lord to do a work in you, even as you're asking the Lord to do a work through you.
And Micah demonstrates that heart attitude. Imagine if we all had that sort of heart, how God might work through us. Now Micah, he closes out verse 9. He, referen- he references the judgment that is going to reach Jerusalem. We see that there. He says, it's reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. In verse 10, what he's going to do is essentially begin to express his dismay of that coming judgment. He's going to list a whole bunch of cities that are in the southern kingdom. Now, we'll probably miss a lot of it if we quickly read through because the words have been translated into English. But what our friend Mike is going to do is he's going to have a a whole series of plays on word. He's going to take a Hebrew word and it's going to sound like this other word. And he's going to make sort of these plays on these words. But again, in the English language, we may miss it because the, the words aren't the same. Well, anyway, as he looks over this, he essentially reflects on how the, the names of those cities almost predicted what was going to come upon them many, many, many years later. And so he starts in verse 10. He says, tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Afra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Now that word Afra there, that, that forms that compound word Beth Afra, it sounds almost the same as the Hebrew word for dust. All right, and so he says, uh, tell it not at all in Beth Afra, roll yourselves in the dust. They, they sound exactly the same. See the play on the words that he's going to do? Verse 11, he says, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanon do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. Now, Shafir, it sounds like the Hebrew word for beautiful. He essentially says it's not going to be a beautiful time. Um, for long, as the inhabitants are marched away in nakedness and shame. Zanon, it sounds like the Hebrew word for exit or to go out. But notice Micah tells them not to go out or not to come out. Don't bother running and hiding uh, as if you're going to be able to avoid the judgment coming upon you. Beth Azel, it means the nearby house. The idea, you think of it like you need sugar. What are you going to do? You got something cooking. You need sugar right away. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the neighbor to get some help, all right? You're in a crisis situation. You're going to run to the neighbor, the nearby house, Bethazel, but he says that it will not be near in that day. He's going to take away the standing place there. Instead, it'll be, it'll be the place of mourning or the place of lamentation, unable to help any other cities because of what it itself is dealing with. Verse 12, Micah writes, for the inhabitants of Maroth, they wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Maroth, it means bitterness. We might say, I don't think it's good English, but we might say it's the place of badness. Maroth means badness. Micah says the citizens of Maroth, they waited for good, but instead disaster came. And how would we define disaster? Using bad English again, we define it as badness. They waited for good, but what did they get? They got badness. They got Maroth. Micah says in verse 13, harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Now, Lachish was the northernmost city before crossing the border into the northern kingdom. And it was the first of the southern cities that really embraced and adopted the idolatry of the northern kingdom. And so he says, you were the beginning of the sin uh, to the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. Lachish, it sounds 
like the Hebrew word rekish, which means wild beast, or it means steed, horse, there. And so Micah tells the city that sounds like steed to harness their steeds to the chariots so that they can take off for the hills. You see, again, all these plays on words he's doing. Micah, verse 14, chapter 1, he says, Therefore you will give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath, the, house, the houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. Moresheth, it sounds like the word for betrothed. And so you have in mind this idea of wedding gifts. Here he says you're going to give parting gifts to these people. Akzib, it sounds like the word akzab, which means lie, or it means deceit, which is what he refers to there. They will be a deceitful thing. Verse 15, he says, I'll bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mereshah, the glory of Israel will come to Adullam. Mereshah, it sounds, it's a form of the word, asha, it's a form of the word yoresh, which means possessor or heir. Well, they're not going to be possessor or heir because it says there that he's going to bring upon them conquerors. Somebody else is going to possess. Somebody else is going to inherit this particular land. He speaks of Adullam. Adullam was the place where King David ran to for safety. Uh, prior to becoming king of the full tribes, he ran to that particular place as a place of refuge. Here, Micah says that the glory of Israel, the kings of Israel, the, the elite of Israel, they're going to run to this place of refuge, um, but of course they're not going to find it. And so Micah here, at the end of this chapter, he kind of hopscotches around the southern kingdom, and he, he plays on the words of the meaning of the names of these particular southern kingdom, this southern kingdom, to say judgment is coming upon you. And he calls upon those cities, you'll notice it here in verse 16, he calls upon those cities uh, as if they're representatives of all the cities of the southern kingdom, and he tells them to make themselves bald and to cut off their hair. I'll read it to you. Make yourselves bald, cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. And of course, we've seen it before, the shaving of their head in this way, it was a sign of brokenness among the Jewish people. And Micah instructs them to be broken over their sin, to shave their head bald in mourning. Because Why? Because their children, if they continue on this path, the children in whom they delight, as he says in the verse, are going to be removed from the land and taken into exile. Nothing was to be more dreaded or, or nothing was more severe than that. That typically meant the end of a nation the end of a civilization, as they take the children off into a foreign land here. And so no wonder Micah would tell them to mourn over these things, repent over these things. And again, God, in his grace, gave them another hundred years in the southern kingdom. Now, chapter 1 is about the sin of idolatry. That's, again, as I said, that's the root of their problem. Chapter 2, he's going to address the manifestations of that. What does that look like? How does that begin to come out in the lives of people? We'll call that the fruit of their sin. So chapter 2, it begins, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power, the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. He begins by pronouncing judgment. That's what woe to those means. He pronounces a judgment on those that lay on their beds at night and they devised means of doing evil uh, as soon as morning comes. So this isn't some sort of like 
sudden act of oppression. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. It just sort of came out. This is something they planned to do. They spent the night, how can I take advantage of others? And as soon as morning comes, they go out to exercise their plan. He speaks of them taking advantage of the weak. Notice he says there, because it was in the power of their hand to do so. Why do they take advantage of the weak? Because they can take advantage of the weak. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? How are you going to stop me? He speaks about how rather than denying their fleshly desires, he uses the word covet. So rather than denying their covetous desires, and in this case it was for other fields and other houses, instead they go and they seize these things by force from others. I'm reminded of the story of Ahab and Jezebel. When Ahab is desperate, I believe it's Ahab, he's desperate for this particular field that belongs to somebody else. And he says, can I have your field? It's such a wonderful field. I'll pay you for it. And the guy says, this is the field of my father's. I can't give this away. I love this place and, and so on. And he goes home, the king sulking, crying. He's all upset. <laughs> his bad attitude. And his wife's like, what's the problem? You know, why, why are you all so upset? That guy over there won't give me a field. You know, it's kind of, I'll go get the field for you. And she does. And she goes over, she tells some lies about the guy. He's put to death for crimes against the state or whatever it might be. And she takes the field. This is in the Bible. Uh, you know where it is? You're, I see. Do you know where it is? It's in the Bible. What's the guy's name? What's the? Nabal. Nabal's the guy. Naboth. It's in the Bible. All right, look it up. All right, Jezebel, bad lady. All right, and she takes it. Why does she take it? because it's in her power to do so. She had that kind of power, that kind of strength, and they can just take advantage of a, a little fella like this. That's what they do here. He speaks in verse 2 of the way in which individuals oppressed others and oppressed their household. He says they're at the end of the verse. And for all of those things, Micah, as the Lord is prompting him, speaks this word, woe to you for these things. Woe to you. Uh, because on your beds you devise wickedness in this particular way. And as they did so, notice what the Lord will say here. Essentially, the Lord is saying, I'm going to lie on my bed and devise a mean of righteousness against you. It says in verse 3, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family, I'm devising a plan. I'm devising a disaster which you cannot remove from your necks, and you will not uh, walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. It'll be a time where they can't remove their necks. Uh, the idea there being they, they had been defeated, and the person comes, the conqueror, and he puts his foot upon the neck of the person. They won't be able to escape this judgment. So those who previously seized the property of others, verse 2, are now going to have their own properties seized. Those that mocked and taunted others... Uh, are now going to be the ones that are mocked themselves. Look at verse 4. In that day they will bring, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me, and to an apostate he allots our fields. Now these are the words of the attackers mocking the people of Israel but you'll notice what's going on is essentially, we can read into this, the people of Israel are saying these things, and then the attackers are hearing it, and they're saying it back to them. They're mocking them. Oh, you, 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 you know, and the kid's crying. Oh, you, 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 he's crying. 
And that's what they're doing back to them. They're mocking them in this instance here. Notice the lament then. In verse 4, the mockers repeating what the Israelites say, they say, we are utterly ruined. Interesting, they didn't seem to mind utter ruin when they were the ones doing the ruining to others. They speak of the apostate coming in, redistributing the land that God had allotted to the ancestors of the Jewish people. Again, they didn't seem to mind when they were the ones doing the redistributing in their own favor. But now that they're on the bottom of the pile here, so to speak, they're all bothered by it. They're shocked that God would allow, the, the word that is used there is an apostate to do these things. An apostate is a person that has forsaken either a religion or the principles of a religion, which is what the northern kingdom had done to the religion of Judaism. And they're shocked that God would allow an apostate to do these sorts of things. That's a foreign people. An apostate to do these sorts of things to the people of Israel. Forgetting, not realizing, they're the apostate. They're the ones that had drifted from the Lord and gone away from the Lord. This helpless state that previously drove others, uh, they previously drove others into, now they're going to be driven into. Look at verse 5. Therefore, you have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. These oppressors in Israel would now experience the same fate as those they previously oppressed. Micah goes on. He reveals to us how the people responded to that. It's not good. Look at verse 6. They say, do not preach. Thus they preach at me. Do not preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. What do they do? They tell Micah not to prophesy. We don't want to hear unpleasant things. Disgrace will never come upon us. It'll never overtake us. We're God's children. You recall when the prophet Amos he went to the northern kingdom, to the city, I believe it was Bethel at the time. Remember, Amos is a contemporary of Micah. He encountered the same type of response from the people there. Particularly the high priest in Bethel of the false religion said, said this, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah. Eat your bread there, make your prophecy living there. Prophesy there, but never again come back here to Bethel. For it's the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the king. Same type of idea. We don't want to hear it. We don't like that negative talk. That doesn't make us comfortable. God would never judge us. The prophecy of Micah, the prophecy of Amos, and all the others, it was unpalatable to them. As I'm sure, by the way, we just finished, as I'm sure Jonah's prophecy was to the people of Nineveh. I'm sure they weren't too fond of hearing that we're going to be judged either. And yet... How did the king of Nineveh respond to Jonah's teaching? We just finished the book. He says this, let everyone turn to his people. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and he may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So what did that, how did that king, that foreign king, respond to a message of judgment? He repented. And he led his people in repenting. How do the children of Israel respond? Well, they throw, put their fingers in their ears. They say, we don't want to hear these things. They even tell Micah, you know what, you need to go home. You need to stop preaching these negative, unpatriotic sermons, like the one that you've been preaching. And that's what many people do in our day as well. 
I don't want to hear what you have to say. You know, my God would never do those types of things. That may be okay for you, but not for me. How dare you say that God would judge America for its sins? And they call out these things just like they were doing back there. Nobody wants to hear that they're going to be judged when their heart is far from the Lord. And so they tell Micah to shut up and to go home. Now Micah responds. He says, should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Now, I had a lot of trouble with this verse this week. It was somewhat confusing to me. What's going on? Is it a continuation of what the, uh, the people were saying to Micah? Or is this now Micah speaking? And so in this instance, I went to the New Living Translation, which I found to be helpful. And I compared that with some of the other translations that are out there to kind of come to this conclusion. Here's what the NLT says. It says, should you talk that way, O family of Israel? Will the Lord's Spirit have patience with such behavior? If you would do what is right, you would find my words comforting. And so rather than saying, look, don't talk that way, rather than convincing yourself that God will be patient with your sin perpetually, Micah says, how about you listen? And how about you respond? He says, look, if you would do right, would not my message be good for you? Would this not be something that would benefit you? Micah knows, however, how far the people have fallen. And so in verse 8, back in our translations, he says, but lately, my people, they've risen up as an enemy. He says, you strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people, you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. He says in verse 10, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. So the false prophets were shocked at the idea that God would judge Israel. And Micah responds, he says, look, that's just it. He says, you fail to realize that you're living your life not as a friend of God, as Israel was designed to be, but as the enemy of God. And you're surprised that since you're living your life as the enemy of God, that God won't bring judgment on you for these things? He says, by these sins, his people had become the enemy of Jehovah. They drive his children, the women and children, out from their homes. And he essentially asked the question, and you want God to bless you in that? He won't bless you in that. How could he not judge you in these things? Again, though, look at the following verse. The people refuse to take heed. And rather, they, they went after the prophets, to use the New Testament phrase that the Apostle Paul wrote about, of the days that we're living in, the last days. They looked for prophets that would tickle their ears. They looked for prophets that would say things that give them a warm and cozy feeling, that would encourage them, challenge them a little, but not too much. Because really, we come to church that we can really feel good about ourselves. Not to be challenged in the things of the Lord. They want people that will tickle their ears. So look at verse 11. He says to them, look, if a man should go about and utter hot air, wind, and lies, if he should say, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. The only prophet that was fit for these people is the one that would foretell of coming abundance, wine, and things like that, strong drink. That's who they're looking for, those prophets that would continue to promise them prosperity, leisure, peace, 
All is going to be well. That's the prophets that they're looking for. That's the ones that they're longing for. And if disaster did come, well, then they would at least have the alcohol to drink themselves into oblivion so they wouldn't have to experience it. And that's how Micah concludes his first sermon. It's his back and forth response, if you will, between him and his listeners. It's, however, not the conclusion of the first message. So it's done sort of the conclusion of the first sermon, but it continues for a couple more verses. He doesn't start the next sermon to chapter 3. Micah says in verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, and I'll gather the remnant of Israel. I'll set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out uh, by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, as verse 12 begins, verse 13 it seems like it's a continuation of this judgment. It seems as if what it's saying is he's going to assemble the people and march them off into exile. But that's not actually what is going on. There's two key phrases that are in this little section. One speaks of this idea of the remnant of Israel. Uh, and the other one speaks about the king passing on before them, breaking the breach and so on and so forth. So there's a significant change of direction from where we were in the sermon to where he is now with these little words that are continued in the writing here. And so verse 12 and 13 are not speaking of the assembling of the people to drive them into exile, but rather the assembling of the people to bring them back from exile. Reverentially, I don't think we should change our Bibles, but reverentially, I think we could change the word assemble and gather to reassemble and regather to give us a greater understanding of what these couple of verses are actually about. This is, this is the beginning of the message of hope at the conclusion of this first sermon here, which is the tendency or the, the, the technique, if you will, of all of the minor prophets. They would lay out the judgment, and then they would conclude with the message of hope. And they'd lay out the judgment and conclude with the message of hope. And that is this, that no matter how absolute the messages of judgment were, they always come back to the place of the hope in God's coming restoration. And so here, after all of this judgment that we've been reading about, we see that God would gather the remnant of Israel back from exile. For the remnant of the upright, there would be a day of restoration. God's anger was not going to burn against his people forever, but there was a coming day of full and complete restoration of the people of Israel. Historically, partially, that occurred, the fulfillment of this prophecy, is when the people of Israel returned uh, from captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and they began to make their way back into Israel. We studied not too long ago the books of Ezra. We studied the book of Nehemiah, which speaks of the people coming back from captivity. That's a partial fulfillment of what we're seeing here. To some degree, this prophecy was fulfilled in 1948, where after nearly 1,900 years of being exiled out of the land, the Jewish people miraculously returned to the land. That's a partial fulfillment of what we're seeing here. But the full and complete fulfillment of verses 12 and verse 13 are still future to you and I. They have not fully occurred. 
the restoration of which Micah is speaking, notice the Lord himself will assemble the people of Jacob, it says, and he will gather them like a sheep in a fold. It says in verse 13 there that he will open the breach and go before them. He'll lead the way. We're going to exit this sheepfold and make our way back to Jerusalem. And it speaks of the time that the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 11 as the time when all Israel would be saved. Romans 11, in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer, notice capital D, will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's what chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 is speaking of. These final verses in Micah chapter 2, it speaks of the time where God will pour out his spirit on the house of Israel. And as it says in the book of Zechariah, he will cause the nation of Israel to finally look upon the one whom they have pierced and mourn for that one as one mourns for the death of the firstborn. I'll read it to you. Zechariah 12, And I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they will mourn for me as one mourns for an only child, though we bitterly over him. Obviously, who's the one who is pierced? It's the Lord Jesus. And God's going to put a spirit within their heart where they'll cry for God's mercy. They'll recognize who it is, who Jesus was as the Messiah. So Micah then is speaking here of the end of the age when Jesus Christ will return in the clouds so that he might rule and reign from Jerusalem as the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people. And he'll rule and reign from Jerusalem, not just as the Messiah of the Jewish people, but as the Messiah of all people. Gentiles as well. We call that the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, which will follow the second coming, where Jesus Christ will come. You heard of terms like Armageddon. He'll have victory. He'll lead his people into Jerusalem. He'll set up his throne where he will rule and reign. God will be faithful to the covenant that he made to his people. And the day would come, will come, when he will rule and reign in righteousness over his people. But the Jewish people, they're not ready for that in this time of Micah that we're reading here. A breaking needed to happen first. First, there needed to be, of these people, a turning away from their sin. There needed to be a purging from the desires of their hearts that was causing them to go after this sin. The Lord loved them too much to allow them to remain in that place. And so in faithfulness to his word, remember the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28? In faithfulness to his word, he drove them out that he might bring them in. He disciplined them, and he had to ramp up the discipline to the most severe form to break them and to bring them to the place of returning. That's a very painful process. That's not the way that God has to work in our lives. He will work that way in our lives, but it's not the way that he has to work in our lives. Today, If you hear my voice, the scripture says, respond, respond. So if God is laying on your heart an area of sin, maybe, probably not as a result of what I've been sharing. I haven't really personalized this in too many ways. But God's Holy Spirit has been speaking into your life about an area of sin. He loves you too much to leave you in that place of sin. He will deal with it. And it gets more and more painful as we continue to push back and rebel against his leading. The children of Israel had to be driven off 
so that they could return. How much better if we simply turn and seek the Lord and relent from whatever it is he's laying upon our hearts, and we do that now. Amen, friends? Would you agree? Let the Lord search your heart about an area. Even the smallest areas create a fissure. It, it causes an opening, which will eventually expand and be a serious problem. Let the Lord deal with even the smallest areas. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you for your word once more. Lord, we, we see the children of Israel and in reality, the things they brought on themselves, the things they allowed themselves to get into and the pain and the destruction that brought upon them. And Lord, we see that in your grace and in your mercy, you'll bring them back, but there'll be a lot of pain in the process. And your desire, Lord, is from the beginning to pour out your blessing on them and on us that we might walk in that blessing. And so, Father, I pray for us that in response to your word today, Lord, that this wouldn't have just been some time to kind of consider some things of old and that's kind of interesting and how about that, but that we would truly let your word search us out. And Lord, as you search us out, that we would respond, you know what, Lord, you're right. I give even this to you. Whether it's some big thing that everybody would be shocked to learn of, or it's a relatively minor thing that most people wouldn't even take notice of. Lord, if you're laying it on our heart, it's a big thing. And so give us the courage to respond in obedience and to walk in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.